Hello, and welcome to Backdoor Cover. It's your boy Mike, and I am here to break down The Last Dance, episode three and four, with the one and only, the returning hoops junkie himself, Mr. Coach Bobby. How are you? All right, what's going on, Whitey? How you doing? Uh, just a, another day in quarantine hell. Oh yeah, it's really awful, but thank God we got The Last Dance, right? Thank God. Thank God we do. Uh, just a reminder... This episode is going to appear on both Mind of Micah and Backdoor Cover, our sports podcast. If you're a regular listener of one, you should check out the other. If you're a regular listener of Mind of Micah, you should check out Backdoor Cover. If you're a regular listener of Backdoor Cover, you should check out Mind of Micah. If you listen to both, I apologize that I'm duplicating the content here, but this is the only thing that people are talking about. We'll be back with more Mind of Micah later this week talking uh, about some other stuff. Brad will be back. Uh, to talk Top Chef, and on Backdoor Cover, we're going to talk about the NFL Draft later this week. So, a lot of good content coming to you later. You don't have anything else to do except sit at home and listen to this. Uh, and uh, so, let's get right to it. Whitey, uh, for those of you who don't know who Coach Bobby is, he is uh, he's, he's probably my best friend since about third grade. He is also a, a hoops junkie and a basketball coach, uh, and a football coach, I guess. But uh He's Mr. Coach Bobby to you, a.k.a. Whitey. Uh, Whitey, thanks again for joining us. It's been a while since you've been on Mind of Micah. Or it has, Cover, yeah. In fact. I think thanks the last time me. we were talking about actual sports instead of just a documentary about something that happened 20 years ago, but yeah. you, can, you, know, you take what you can get right now. Right. That feels like 20 years ago when we did it, when we once talked about real basketball. Isn't that the fucking truth? It, yeah. You know what else is funny is just like when this thing ended last night, they, I saw a little bit of Sports Center. Scott Van Pelt was just like recapping it, like it was a, a real current event. Yeah, and that's he does it the late night Sports Center. Right? Yeah, yeah, and Caitlin was just like, "What? What is happening here? <laughs> this, are they really just like treating this like it's breaking news? Something that happened twenty years ago?" I'm like, "This is all that we have." Okay, so just yeah. back up. Don't, don't ruin this for me. <laughs> you can never this... take this away from us. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, uh, she watched last night. Seemed to enjoy it. I, I think. You know, the the basketball, mon- there was one point where there was a Jordan montage last night, um, and she was just like, that was a really long montage. It was like, that was not a long montage. I could watch I could watch <laughs> 10 hours of Jordan just it wasn't long making, flying la- yeah, making flying layups and shit. Um, I know exactly what you mean. But so three and four last night, uh, one and two, basically one set the table for the, the Jordan career, kind of the overall storyline, and then this, the, the, you know, sort of previewing the se- this 98 season, this last dance season. Episode two was sort of about Scottie Pippen and, and sort of chronicled how much uh, the Bulls, including Jordan, uh, hated Jerry Krause. Um, shockingly, not Jerry Reinsdorf. They really didn't have anything negative to say about him, even though I theorized in the end of our episode one and two recap that he is really the one to blame for the breakup of the Bulls. I, I don't and know I if totally that's, agree if that's where you stand, too. Um, Absolutely. The one other thing I would say before we get to episode three and four is that I, like, I could have, this, especially when episode, well, both of them last night, but especially episode four, when it ended, I was like, wait, that's it? That's all we get? I, I could have done another three hours of that last night. No yeah. doubt. And once um, this shit goes to to uh, Netflix, which is where it goes here in a few months, I don't know exactly what the time is, uh this can be like the most binge. I could definitely see us sitting down and watching ten hours of this, like in a, on yeah, a Saturday, yeah. especially if there's no sports. Yeah, I totally agree. It, it, in the dog days of summer, I think the way that they originally had it set up was very smart. 
as well. They were going to they were going to air this after the finals. Yeah, and I think they were just going to do goal. one episode a week for 10 weeks. Yeah, and I think that's very smart because at that point, that's when you're dying. You're waiting for football to come back. Really, the only thing going on is golf. Uh, so that, that that would be a really good time to – well, I mean, I guess you can't binge watch it, but at least you're looking forward to that Sunday night. Now we're look, now it's even – you know, multiply that by 30 or 40 because you you don't have anything else to look forward to. But yeah. I, I pretty much agree with all of those takes. But, like, these episodes are – like, they're 48 minutes long or something probably with commercials. I don't know exactly how long it is, but – with watching them on Netflix with no commercials and just like automatically skipping to the next episode, if if they're if football season is delayed by a month, are you telling me that that I can't? I mean, you have to be crazy to think that I'm not going to sit on the couch and watch all ten of these on a Sunday instead yeah, of Red Sox uh, one day. They're the makers of this are going to be rolling in dough. This is this is a really smart move yeah. uh, for multiple reasons. I mean, I think this is a compelling story. Uh, you know, even if you're not a Bulls fan, even if you weren't a Michael Jordan fan, this would be a compelling story. You know, complete regardless of the time, the time that they're no airing doubt. it. You know, in the middle of quarantine. But well, what did you think Let's, about episode three? Let's get down to it. Yeah. So uh, if episode one was kind of the introduction, episode two was Scotty and sort of the Bulls organization. Episode three is about Rodman, uh, Dennis Rodman, who uh, was a part of those second, the second three-peat. Bulls teams, uh, but also they sort of use him as a narrative to talk about uh, Jordan and the Bulls getting past the Pistons and the Bad Boys teams, uh, of which Rodman was obviously a part of as well. So that's sort of what episode four is about. Um, so Rodman is is such an interesting figure sort of in the history of basketball, like the most unique player we've ever seen. Yes. To, to say there was a stat last night that he had like 10 games where he had 20 rebounds and no points, and there there have only been five games of twenty rebounds and no points by any other player in the history of the NBA. I've never even and heard Jordan, of that from anybody and, else. Yeah, yeah, and Rodman has twenty. It's fucking crazy. And like, I thought about you the the scene where he's in there describing the how he like saw the angles of rebounding and knowing right. how like if if uh, Larry Bird shoots the ball, it's going to spin one way. If my if Magic shoots, uh, it's going to barely spin. If Michael shoots it this way, I'm going to get here. I'm going to look for the angles here. It's like, the art, the art of rebounding. Yes. What did you think about that little, uh, that little well, twenty second snippet? The first, the the first thing that came to mind is like, God, this guy cannot very, not really articulate his thoughts very well. No. Uh, which which I can I can relate to at times as well. But uh, I I understood for the most part what what he meant I, as a connoisseur of cleaning the glass. I, I understand what he's saying is if you're, you know, if someone's shooting from the the corner, you know, the backboard isn't really in play. So you need to situate yourself. Generally, I try to situate myself on the other side of the rim because the majority of the time, if it's a miss, that's where it's going to end up. Um, so he, I understood what he was saying, but at the same time, if you're somebody that <laughs> isn't, isn't all that um, experience when it comes to rebounding, you might be kind of like, God, I don't what on earth did he just say? And and I don't know exactly how much time he spent actually studying. I think I think he doesn't really understand what he's doing sometimes. Um yeah, as, as a part a lot must of the, have a some lot of sort personal of life as well. Idiot savant features going on in his life. Right. Like he has to like he is a basket he's a rebounding genius, but it can't be because he spent a million hours studying what he was doing. No, like a lot of it's, it's just he it's a natural just natural. Ability. Yeah. 
it's an instinctive he he's the, a he's a guy that can react. Did you hear what um David Aldridge said? He said he's the best on ball defender you've ever seen. Yeah. And that's part that's because he's reacting. He's he's not he's not initiating somebody that's a really good defensive player has has really good reflexes and can move laterally very quickly. And that's part of I think that's where he's the the art of rebounding is he can react to where the ball's coming from what it looks like in the air, like how much arc it has, where everybody else is on the floor. That's, that's what, that's more of what, and that's, that's more, that's difficult to study. That's going to be a, right. an instinctive and you got to, it's kind of like on, it's, it's like on the court training, you know, for that kind of stuff. I don't know how much you can actually yeah. study. And that little montage where he was like, bing, bomb, ball goes here. I'm bang this way. Like all that stuff. I watched it three times and every time Caitlin was like, what are you, what is he talking about? Like people that don't understand basketball and I was just like this is so fucking good like it, it yeah, was my favorite awesome, part of the whole documentary it was so good I was like this is so fucking awesome basketball is the best and Rodman is a genius and but he like he can't string four words together and even when you're watching him talk about the thing he knows about best he can't communicate it right like it's it's just an intuitive thing that he has a nobody I mean you can argue nobody in the history of the league has had the way that he has a guy that's his size like he was a skinny dude that wasn't that tall, and for him to lead the league in rebounds as many times as he did was unbelievable. Seven, seven times. I didn't realize that it was set. He led the league in rebounding for seven straight years. And I mean, There's we've no all way. seen. I doubt that's ever been done. Yeah, we've all seen a hundred. I mean, there, very few athletes have as many documentaries made about them as Dennis Rodman. Like I've seen four or five over the years. Basically, we saw the 30, I, uh... we saw the thirty for thirty about him like about a year ago, maybe. Was on yeah, it. is that the one Jamie Foxx narrated and produced? I, for, I forget. There's, There's been so many of them. But, like, the I watched it with Caitlin. So, like, we were sitting there. Like, I convinced her to watch it one time about a year ago. And so she's like, haven't I already – don't I already know this stuff about Rodman? And really, like, I learned a, some things that I did not know. I knew that he was that he was poor and his mom basically kicked him out of the house and he was, you know, basically homeless and the way that he got to college, they didn't really explore. He was just basically like, I was playing, and they were like, do you want to come to college? And I was like, sure. Um, you know, his route to college was a little more, has been chronicled a little bit more in depth, uh, as well as some of his sort of personal things. You know, the they talked about the rifle in the car a little bit uh, when he was in Detroit. But, you know, in, in the other documentaries, like, it was pretty clear that was, he was trying to, it was, we were headed towards a suicide attempt, basically. Yeah. Uh, the other documentary talked about how he had his one of his shoes off, which apparently is the way that you shoot yourself with a rifle. Like, not that I would know, but uh, yeah, it, yeah, I, I know, remember they talked about that that the documentary. I'm really glad I watched this one, the Jamie Fox. I watched this one like less than a week ago uh, because you know a lot of us got a lot of time on our hands, so I'm going through 30 for 30s, and I I knew some of his story, but I didn't realize a lot of this stuff. You know, he didn't play high school basketball all, at all. Like, I don't think he played – the first time he played organized sports was in college. Unbelievable. And this is uh, – yeah, this is unreal. And then he didn't – he was five foot ten. I think, his junior and senior year. And that's part of the reason he got cut is he wasn't all that skilled. And, you know, you're five foot ten, and you're – you know, you don't have great ball skills. You're not going to make a, a, a basketball – a high school basketball team for the most part. And he grew something like eight inches after high school. Uh, so this dude's a he's a super late bloomer, which I can also relate to. And and he didn't quite he didn't really uh, figure out his own his own skill set until he was much later. And some 
somebody just sort of found him playing at a at a rec center. I think yeah. it was a coach. It was like a junior college coach in the Dallas area where he grew up because he was living on. He was literally homeless for two years. He wasn't. It wasn't like a. Well, I was sleeping on a friend's couch and what? Like no, he no. Was, he was on the street. He was living on the street. He, he said he slept in friends' backyards. But I think a lot of the time he was actually on the street. And this is for like this is for over a year that he's doing this until he and until this coach finds him and he plays for this junior college for a little while until he lands in is it southeastern Oklahoma or Southeastern like Oklahoma, that? I think. Which uh I would assume that they have changed their school mascot from the Savages. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I like this is the perfect mascot. He could have just been the mascot. Oh, uh, that that's the best there's something true that mascot. true to that. I, I don't believe that is uh, politically correct in uh, 2020 to to no. refer to uh, Native Americans as savages. Uh, I would assume yeah. they changed their their thing, but uh yeah, it's pretty that was kind of jarring to, to watch him just tearing motherfuckers up. He he claimed that he averaged like 27 points and 14 rebounds a game in college. I don't know if that's true or not. That was that in the doc in the was the, it in the other documentary 30, too? Yeah, that was roughly his stat line. It was close to 15 rebounds. Well, I can believe that. Like yeah. 25 plus points. Yeah. That's See, he, I think he was all. They're all. If you're watching any of the highlights, which is really cool, you get to see a lot of these highlights that haven't. You, you know, you really got to dig to find. Um, same thing with Scotty Pippen. I know yeah, that, that was something we sense. talked about last week. How awesome it was yeah. to see all that Scotty small school footage too. Right. We see he's Rodman. Just looks like he's about he's about three or four inches taller than most of the kids on the court in college, and and he's just getting secondhand second chance points and fast break points it's not like he's hitting jump no. shots he doesn't have he, he never had a refined and he wasn't jumping up and game. dunking over people the way scotty pippen was either even though like he no. was you know taller and and more energy and just won it more like the you think about somebody who's homeless for two years and then get a chance to play basketball and like get yeah. a degree and be around people it's uh it's a wild story and then the thing that i didn't know was when then he talked about a little bit that like it took him like two or three years in the NBA to figure out what he did best. Yeah. And perhaps no player, or at least, I mean, no no player has ever been a more high-profile example of being the perfect role player, maximizing the skill that they have and making it work, not just to like stay on a roster, but to create winning basketball. Yeah, he's a five. He he's a five time champion. So it's not. It isn't just like he's you know he's somebody that comes off the bench or. Yeah, this isn't JJ Redick who knows he's a great shooter and <laughs> you know stays in and and shoots and you know comes in and he's there to shoot threes and like can be in the league and play for ten years and make a bunch of money. Like he was there. He knew that he could rebound and play defense and almost nothing else. And he yeah. he realized he was so good at those two things that he he helped teams win championships it's, a, it's a, and he made a he made a pretty damn good living doing it too it yeah that's true just, too this this isn't you know i know this is called like the dirty work and it's the this is the blue collar job of playing part of basketball but i mean he he made pretty damn good money doing it and he was successful you know he's just a great example for yeah and i mean you talk and he's so memorable like and stylish in the way that he did it too not just all the shit off side off the floor but like just the way that he played the game was so he's always on the floor. Yeah, he's on the floor, he's kicking his legs out, he's grabbing rebounds over dudes that are 6 inches taller than him, like he's guarding every position. Like he was an amazing player to watch. Yeah, and, I think you know, that goes beyond we, all the crazy hair and everything else. Yeah, I think what some people probably don't appreciate that cuz he's such a he's such a sideshow. 
that he he had an unreal motor and and he could he could high point a ball when he get a rebound clean but a lot of times because he's so much smaller than big guys there were a whole lot of seven footers that played and they and teams were basically designed around a big man and he so he'd be guarding somebody he'd have somebody on his body on his hip trying to get a rebound that was so much bigger and stronger than he was. So he'd have to basically tip the ball two, three, four times. Like you see that highlight where he gets his rebound on Charles Barkley. It's not, he's not all that big, but he's not all that tall, but he's definitely, he's definitely much bigger in mass than Rodman is. He's much wider. He's got to tip the ball two, three times. And the, the, by the time he finally gets the rebound, he's so out of position. He kind of like contorts his body and he snags it well out of it kind of looks like he's almost out of the frame and you're just assuming Barkley's going to get the ball and Barkley just like after he gets it he just looks at him he just sort of shakes his head like Jesus Christ I did everything I could there's no way there's no way anybody other than that guy is going to get that rebound it's like you know just beside himself there's I I don't know what the what I'm supposed to do with this dude it's a freaking worm yeah I mean he's I don't know I mean maybe the greatest but certainly the most memorable role player of all time like like, what's the guy uh, from Houston uh, who played at Texas? Oh, is this Malone? No, 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 no. Oh, Who's in the league now? Who wears all the Tucker. shoes? Yeah, P.J. Tucker. Classic 3 and D guy. Like, he is, he is, he knows what his role is. That's what he does. He doesn't veer from that role. He's made a long career. He's doing it. That's that's it. Nobody's going to be talking about P.J. Tucker in 10 years or 20 no, years. No, they're not going to be doing an Even entire if, episode of this yeah, awesome that's just, documentary on. I mean, like, even, even you talk about a guy like Robert Ory. Who was a part of a bunch a bunch of championship teams and played his role perfectly? Like he's the only guy I can think of that that always made his team better because he just did what he did, uh, like Rodman did. But Rodman yeah. had so much. Fli- like Rodman's in the Hall of Fame. Robert Ory, they, you know, people always talk about putting him in the Hall of Fame, but he's not a Hall of Famer. And no. Dennis, Dennis certainly was. But yeah. Robert and we get Ory, to see Dennis. That. Robert Ory and PJ Tucker weren't dating Madonna, are not dating Madonna, no porn shit. stars, and they're not running through I think Carmen Electra, Madonna, the yeah, whole, whole the end squad. of the thirty for thirty. They described Dennis Rodman as like top ten most recognizable people in the world. You know, these guys, no, none of these other role players have this enigma and have this uh, right. this aura and and a presence about them the way the way Rodman did. And he's a he's an interesting, a, you know, love him or hate him. There, he's he's very unique and uh, he's uh, he's a dynamic personality for sure. Yeah, he talked. Uh, you know, they showed a little bit about him with Chuck Daly leaving, and there was a, a new coach, and and that was sort of they talked about how much he's he looked up to Chuck Daly and how that was sort of bad for for Ch- or for uh, Rodman in general. The the thing, you know, and then Rodman also said that he was his style of play was like a rash you can't get rid of, which is pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> did you did you hear what? The be- I thought the best line in episode three was uh, Gary Payton describe him. He said he's Rodman is the fuck up. He's the guy that comes in. He fucks up. He fucks up the offense. He fucks up the flow of everything. He just disrupts just by him being out there. He disrupts and he gets in guys head. And I've seen this. I've seen this happen firsthand is you can you you get a steal. You steal an entry pass to a post player. And now now every guard on the floor is aware of your presence. And even if you're not sitting on an entry pass, you're like, you're say you're exhausted one time down the floor. They decide they're not going to pass it to this guy. Who's a good 
who's who's a really good post player has got a lot of moves and he can score when he gets the ball just simply because you're there because you're and that's like that's what that's what he did is he he's his presence on the floor is in the back of everybody's mind and it totally disrupts the flow of the offense and their their yeah. confidence and their it, ability you, to you play the way they want to you can practice you can't practice uh, against something like Dennis Rod like you're I that's what I thought about is you just imagine these NBA guys with their coaches, you know, and the the schemes, and you're just running practices, and you're throwing, you know, you're you're out there practicing your offensive strategy, and everything in practice goes pretty smoothly. You swing the ball, you you dribble, whatever, you know, you 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 see, you know, it's like a football team, and you're out there running against air, and you're like, oh, we we move the ball up and down the field, uh, but there's no way to prepare for what Rodman brings. Like he is going to just throw a wrench in whatever that yeah. well-oiled you can be a well-oiled machine but if somebody's in there just fucking junking it up like rodman did it it and if if all you do is plan a like there's just no way to prepare for plan b uh right. to take away part of whatever that is uh, rodman didn't even know what he was going to do so how the hell is the exactly team yeah, no, no how shit. are they going to know what he's going to do exactly um all right so then we get as we move into uh you know more of the rodman stuff we we show um, you know, there was that part where the, the assistant for, uh, the piston said that Rodman was, or that Daly told him just like, you can't, you can't break a Mustang. You can't put a saddle on a Mustang. Uh, just can't let him put go. a saddle on. Yeah. Yeah. He's talking to the assistant, uh, Malone. That's a really good line. Which there was too. great. It's like, just, just leave him alone. You can't, you can't put a saddle on a Mustang. That's what, and I don't know if Phil, I don't know if Phil is, uh, aware of that if you if you like spoken to Detroit any of the Detroit coaches but that's kind of what he realized with Dennis is that if you're going to get the most out of him you have to let him you know like he he's got to have that 72 hour vacation in yeah. Vegas that was supposed to be 48 hours but you've got to let him you got to let him let loose I also and I think this is mostly in episode four but I wasn't aware that uh that he was that close to to MJ that MJ was sort of like, uh, I don't know, like a pseudo older brother, but somebody that kind of held him accountable and, and you know, that Dennis actually would listen to. And I, I mean, that makes sense. He's yeah. I really like the part where, you know, like he got kicked out of a game and he just showed up at, to Michael's hotel room for the cigar. Yeah. And just said, you have an extra cigar. And he's, and Michael said like, he never apologized. He never said, I'm sorry. I fucked up. Like it won't happen again. But like, just him coming to talk to him was his way of saying all of that, you know? Yeah. And like, that's sort of and the way that knew it. that's sort of the way things go with, with friends too, you know? Like, right. It's a, uh, it's, it's sometimes words don't have to be spoken. Exactly. They're, just, they're under, they're understood. Yeah. Exactly. And that was something that, you know, I've never seen in the, the Rodman documentaries, maybe because there's so much about Rodman, but you never sort of understand that dynamic. And I thought that was, that was pretty interesting. So then we start going through, uh, you know, while Rodman is in Detroit, Detroit's winning championships. One thing they didn't mention in this documentary, the year before, so the the Pistons win in 89 and 90. Is that right, or is it 90 and 91? Uh, they won the championship in, uh, no, 89 and 90, because the Bulls won 91. Yeah, okay, so yeah. they win 89-90. They, they lost game seven in 88, by like five points, like they had a chance to, or it may have been closer. Uh, they had a chance, legit chance to go on a three peat, which I didn't real sort of realize. Um, and people talk about, you know, they went back to back. They were right there. 
Uh, they lost the Lakers by um, in Game Seven the year before. They could have been, they could have had their own three P. I yeah, is, I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't really aware of that either. That's yeah, that's impressive. I mean, that that's a pretty good team. They, I, I know that they're a lot of brawlers and a lot of guys that kind of uh, guys that would just be sort of construed as hockey goons now. But they they had a pretty solid team. And, and if you there's a there's a really good thirty for thirty about about them too about how close that team was. Yeah, and Lakers. That's like Lakers that's, won in the '88 series in the '88 finals. Lakers win Game One and Two in L.A. Detroit wins Game Three, Four, and Five back in Detroit, and then uh, L.A. wins Game Six and Game Seven, 108, 105. So they win Game Seven by only three points. Like this, you know, you get another bounce the other the other way. This is a uh, yeah, that's a this could be a, a three peat, a bunch of. Yeah, and and I don't know if we think of Detroit differently. It is, you know, something they talked about in the documentary, and, and you see it, is how different the game is uh, compared yeah. to what we see now and really how different it was, you know, sort of by the end of their run, which sort of went out unsaid. It, You know, when the Bulls finally do take them down in 91, they show that flagrant foul on Scotty, and he just sort of sits down and doesn't react. But like they also said, that's a flagrant foul. I don't believe the the, the term flagrant foul was a thing uh, in the early years of, of Detroit. Like they they you can see why aesthetically, like this is just not as pleasing as the game is now. And and really, when those you know the biggest change was when the sort of seven seconds or less Suns came in. You know that's when the the uh-huh. change really happened, where they made the game wide open and all the hand checking and the fights and the pushing. But like you can see why if you're a Detroit fan. You go, you know, that's how basketball should be played, or like these dudes are tough and they don't get credit, and that's true. But you can also see why, if you're like the league commissioner, you're like, fuck this. Like, what, what's better, this or Showtime? Like guys running down the court and dunks, and, yeah. Instead of all these guys hammering it, and, and it wasn't, you know. And I also think Detroit gets a bad rap because they were maybe the best at it, or they were certainly the best team. But like, there were dudes in Boston, Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish were hammering dudes all over the. You know, this wasn't just ball. This wasn't just Detroit playing this way. Yeah, I yeah, that was kind of a league. I think that was league wide. The Detroit maybe they perfected it, uh, mucking up the game and intimidating you because because you take it hard. You're taking the ball into the, you know, to the hole and you get fouled real hard. You're really thinking twice about doing it about the next time that you go in. You, even if you don't get touched, you're you're con- you know thinking about it. Oh, last time. I got hammered in the face. Let me. I need to wince when I, when I get to the rim. Yeah. Um. But the that Detroit team. What I was gonna say was there. There. This team that was was more than just a you know a collection of pieces. They were more than the sum of their own parts because they were so tight. They were close. Mm-hmm. They were. It was a tight knit group of dudes. It was kind of like us against the world type of thing. And I what I thought was really cool about that is that's part of Dennis's his career arc is he comes in the league this super naive kid and he's part of this team that's more like a family it's more that was probably more of a college experience and a high school experience for him than it was uh than he than he had in his own his own experiences and he comes to the realization as that team is kind of dismantled because the a lot of the veterans are older and they can't keep up. And the Bulls, the Bulls have kind of dismantled them, themselves. And he starts to realize that this is a business and he becomes jaded. And he that's he ends up in San Antonio for a couple of years. And I know they don't talk, they only touch on this briefly in the last dance, but they talk about it more in his documentary that it he he kind of morphs into this 
sideshow that's he's got the demolition cut and he's he's got a different haircut every day he's got the piercings and everything after he's feel he sort of feels like he's abandoned by his family members that are that were his teammates in detroit because he didn't realize that this was a business that the, all things change that not you know the stuff's not going to last forever and then and then when he gets by the time he gets to chicago he sort of has to be reined in by by these like by the best in the in the game by jordan phil and pippen and and phil i think they do a they do a really good job giving him credit for uh for handling these personalities he's 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 more than just a coach he's so much more than just x's and o's he's He's this manager of egos and personalities and and the dynamics of them between between all of the members on the team. And he's he does a really good job of reining in uh, Rodman and handling him and in, 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 in holding him accountable without pushing him away. I think in, I've read Phil's book, too. It's a really good book. Some free advertising for it. Uh, he talks about how Dennis needed attention. But he didn't. the The best thing you could do could at times could be just to watch him and not, and not, you know, give him any mm. negative feedback or any kind of feedback. Period. Just let him know that you're watching him, that you're aware of yeah. what he's doing in his antics. And that's that was that was one of the best ways to handle him. And I think that's they do a really good job in the documentary talking about that. And and Rodman even admits he said, "Yeah, Phil was great. I was, you know, I, I love Phil. I love Mike. I love Scotty. You know, those guys were those guys were my boys. Uh, you know, and they held they held him accountable because of that. So well, and that it, really it makes sense because you know, I mean, we've we've known it for years, but we're seeing it now in this documentary. Mike is so fucking super focused on winning basketball." Like yeah. nothing else matters to him, or at least nothing else matters nearly as much as winning basketball. And he recognized that Rodman could help him do that. Yeah, you know? and, he didn't and, care. And he had he seen it firsthand. Past history. Yeah, he didn't care. Um, did you did you see what Scotty? You know, I don't even know if this is. I thought this was in the preview, but Scott, the, I saw the. I guess it was a preview, or it was an interview with Scotty, and they asked him what what he said when they first a, first asked him about acquiring. Rodney he said hell no he said I fucking hate the guy he's not he's got all kinds of bad bad blood with him because he used to Rodman used to check him when he played for Detroit and Jordan had to talk Jordan and Phil had to talk Scotty into letting him come on because Scotty was not on board uh originally which makes sense but continue yeah yeah it is it's uh he's really a perfect framing device for this you know going from the Pistons to the Bulls uh but while the Pistons are doing their thing, and and you know, back to what you said about being great, the sum, the parts being, or the sum being greater than the parts. Like this is a team that they weren't the only team that had a bunch of bruisers. And if you watch highlights from these this era, there are a lot of games that are like seventy two to eighty, and it even yeah. went like through till like two thousand. When you watch, you know, I've seen some of the old Spurs ninety nine season games that are on. Like they're beating the Knicks in the finals, like 82, 68 and stuff like the, the game was really the, the hard fouls weren't there, but the, the kind of ugliness was. And I think it's cause they, they embraced that bad boy role. Like gave Dennis something to, you know, to play for. And, and that was what they did anyway. But as this is happening, uh, Doug Collins comes in, he's the new coach of the bulls, um, with fucking unbelievable hair. 
Uh, when oh, he's yeah. first hired, he, he looks pretty reasonable. And then that sort of like fucking 80s perm thing happens. And it's just a bad look. Yeah, it looks like he's teaching an aerobics class with a bunch of uh, yeah, jazzercise. With a bunch of house housewives. Yeah, in yeah, 1986. It's not good. I like how the hair gets worse when he's when he's yes, first hired. That's the on best part. He he has somewhat normal haircut. It's it's relatively short. Uh, there's no mullet, and then it you know morphs into this perm mullet. That yeah, the curls, the mullet, it's, party in the back. Yeah, it's pretty. It's it's pretty awful. It's amazing. That's that's really cool to watch afterwards. He <laughs> he the story. The story with him, him and Mike, I, I know that's that's been documented, but I didn't quite understand the dynamic of it. Jo- Jordan liked him because he was young, energetic. Uh, he wanted to win, and also because he basically ran the offense. Everything was through Jordan. Everything was isolated through it, it, all of the offensive sets. Ended up with him and the ball in some sort of isolation set. And Phil and Tex Winters are in the back. They're kind of like this. This is great, you know, for if you want a scoring champion on your team every year. But and it's great if you're you're MJ. But if if you want to win, this is probably not the way to go about doing it. Mm-hmm. And and Phil was having none of it. He was like, yeah. He even banned Tex winners from the bench. They talk about that in episode three. Yeah, Collins did. And, yeah, yeah, Collins did. Uh, that's what I meant. Uh, and and to, didn't want to hear anything about the triangle anymore. And and that's when. To to his credit, Jerry Krause is more or less the villain of this documentary. Actually, is the one that decides to make the change and fires Phil and and brings fires Collins and brings in Phil Jackson to coach. I, I thought that I was like I, I didn't I thought that they might go into that a little bit more because that still seems like that's something because Jordan says he's not a Phil fan when he first gets hired on. He's not really. It, he's not a big fan of Phil. Yeah, it was interesting to see that Phil, like, didn't come in as an alpha male. Like, he kind of sat on the bench for a couple of years and listened to Tex Winter and just soaked it all in. It was kind of the way they made it seem. You know, which was right. different, because I knew he was an assistant there, but I didn't sort of realize, you know, it, it was interesting to me that they had they brought him on and just kind of let him sit in the background and learn, and then, you know, became apparent that he was a guy, which is funny considering you, you take... Doug Collins, who had taken the Bulls team, which when they were lousy, to the Eastern Conference Finals in Game Seven, no less. That's another thing that doesn't. I don't understand how that. And I wish that they would have dove into that a little bit more. Is how how was Jordan on board with that? If they're if they're getting better, and he's and and he's in Doug Collins' corner, how he's all right with that? And I guess maybe at that maybe at that point they're. Uh, you know, Jordan doesn't have the same voice that he does yeah. later but, on. You know, Apparently, they did talk about that over the, the course of Doug Collins' career there, Jordan had gone from being, you know, an all-star to the MVP award, the all-star MVP, the defensive player award, and the slam dunk contest. Like, yeah. he was a, the guy in the league. Uh, and to to think that, you know, he did that under a guy that he liked, he couldn't have been happy about the guy that he liked being run off, basically. Um yeah, I, and that's also a testament to how much things have changed with player empowerment. Players, it's more like a coach. A coach is more of almost like a puppet figure to the to the best player on the team for most of these NBA teams. You know, like the Brooklyn Nets coach just got fired. Uh, he's having a pretty good year, and he's a pretty good coach. But he wasn't. He's not Durant or Kyrie Irving's guy. He, you know, yeah. he was there before they got there, and they're not. They are not clearly not signed off on him. So. 
So he gets that guy's gone. So that's uh, I would kind of wish that they dove into that more, but clearly Phil it, Phil was the right man for the job. You know, obviously he's the, the perfect coach in the nineties. Still... The the shit that he was doing, leading these guys in yoga and doing like all the Native American <laughs> stuff. Like it's it's all crazy, and I'm pre predisposed to dislike Phil because he talked a lot of shit on the Spurs over the years. Um, <laughs> and I just think he's sort of woohoo, like how hard can it be to win with Michael Jordan and Shaq and Kobe? But you do get an appreciation for like how how dialed in he is. And really, like he gets a lot of credit for running the triangle, but it, they make it very clear that like, this is Tex Winter's offense. Yeah. And the some of the best stuff in that video was how they showed video from Tex Winters from 1960, like when he was at Kansas, Kansas State. State. Yeah, yeah, drawing up plays like that was really cool. It was really cool, and it was yeah, clear Phil, that Phil was more into how he could coach each player to you know reach help the team reach the goal than he was worried about exploiting mismatches or whatever you want to do. Yeah, I think he was ahead of his time in a lot of ways. He was ahead of his time, but he uh, he absorbed. He absorbed a lot of this stuff from an older, the older coaches, a guy like Tex Winters, and he actually gives Tex Winters credit in his. Uh, he always his has. Book. He always has. Yeah, he did. He's not. He doesn't act like he's. He, uh, you know, he uh, coined the. He coined the the offense all all on his own, but uh, he soaks up all this stuff from these veteran coaches, and then he kind of uses it in his own way. He's he's not. He's. He's definitely he definitely understands that basketball is a team concept. I've got the greatest player in the world, but he's he can't win everything on his own. He's not going to score. He can't score forty five a night and and have us win. And anybody that's played basketball can totally understand this because I played I played enough with like a ball dominant guy. Then and when you're and when you're sitting over there and you're basically spectating for half the game, you don't play defense as hard. You don't rebound as hard. You don't you just don't play as hard because you're, you're not enjoying it. You know, you're not that ball. The ball has its own synergy. And when it's being passed around and zipped around, you know, everybody, everybody improves. And I think that's what Phil kind of realized. He's like, if, if we played with this triangle offense, then it makes everybody a viable uh, uh, threat offensively. And that's, that's going to get these guys to play. We're going to improve we're going to bring everybody up because Phil says he's like, I'm not worried about you, Michael. I'm worried about everybody else, and we need to bring everybody else up. So they, I thought they did a really good job. So then we, we we'll, yeah, I agree. I'll, well, I'm kind of jumping around here, but we'll go back to the series over Cleveland in '89. Phil Collins or Doug Collins is still the coach. Uh, you know, they talked a little bit about how good that Cleveland team was and how they were really the an emerging power. Uh, it was either going to be Chicago or Cleveland that was going to be the team that eventually, you know, dethrone would, would Detroit. dethrone Detroit. And, you know, and they talked about that a little bit. That Cleveland team was stacked. They were really good. And to see, you know, what how they were all, all three of those beat writers had them as, as uh, oh yeah, as, you know, prohibitive favorites over Chicago. And then they get to game five and Jordan walking by all three of the beat writers saying, <laughs> I, love that. I, I got that you, the one who picked them in three, the one who picked Cleveland in four, and the one who picked Cleveland in five and said, I, I already got you, I got you, and today I'm going to get you. That's what, another incredible piece of the, this documentary. Is a lot of Jordan's, uh, his personality and and his antics are not all that well documented. First, because it wasn't social media wasn't around, and because I think once he became successful, he he didn't 
I don't, I think he got kind of sick and tired of being in the limelight in his own personal life. And yeah. A lot of his, I don't, I don't think he wanted to be, you know, like the way LeBron is now is he's sort of advertising almost, almost everything on his IG page. You know, his whole life is, yeah, he's is got his own production company. He's got that show on HBO that the talk, which is just basically him talking or the shop. Like, yeah, the you know, barbershop stuff. I won't say he's overexposed, but like you know hit what he's thinking all the time. And yeah, Michael, Jordan, we just don't. He, we, I don't he's think gone a away. lot of people know him. Yeah, yeah, I really don't think people, you know, he didn't He didn't get into broadcasting. He's not like a lot of these guys. He like never, Magic he also Barkley. wasn't that outspoken as a player. You know, like it was always sort of the, the joke that Tiger Woods was like the modern Michael or that Kobe was like Michael because they just wouldn't ever say anything. He's like a robot. Yeah. And, you know, it, it all goes back to Republicans buy sneakers, too, and all that stuff. But then from the point he retired, as you mentioned, he didn't go on TV. He didn't get into coaching. He just sort of, you know, he got into business and he did very well. But he doesn't have an Instagram. He doesn't have Twitter. We don't hear from Michael unless something major happens. Like, you you don't see a tweet from Michael when Kobe when Kobe's helicopter went down. You just see Michael show up at the, the thing and give yeah, a speech. You know, eulogy, it's, it's yeah. a it's a different approach, and I think it's made him more sort of I'm, I won't say mysterious, but like mythical in a certain way. Yeah, and that's uh, part of his appeal, and that's kind of what's so cool about this documentary is this raw, uncut. And the other awesome thing is that it's not uh, it's TVMA. It's so much better. Yes, with with this raw, you got this just raw emotion. They show his reaction to. Um, what video do they show him about Isaiah? Because he oh, the Isaiah thing was fucking unbelievable. He can't, he can't stand Isaiah, and these dudes and are so petty. We'll get to that, but I mean, it's so fucking petty. We're talking thirty years ago, and there's like none of these guys are over it. Uh, but we will talk about. So Michael hits the shot over Craig Elo, which right, we've okay, seen yeah, a million times with the the big jumping fist bump, and there, as you mentioned, he says, "We finally got over the hump of a loser's mentality." His reaction at the time, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Whoever's fuck not all with you us, all you fuckers go to hell, which yeah. is so fucking hardcore. And he says it, he says it with such enthusiasm in when he's oh, being he's interviewed. Gleeful. He's gleeful talking about 30. It. This is 30, uh, 31 years later from when this happens. And he just, and you can just tell, like, you can tell he's feeling the emotion that he felt after he made the jump shot. And he just feels like everybody, everybody counted him out and everybody counted him down. And he makes that, you know, he, the other thing about this, about this game and that shot has been very, that, that shot's been replayed millions of times, but the ending of the game yeah. is really, I think that that's something that's not that well documented is he makes a shot with six seconds left. He makes a jump shot to take, to give them a one point lead. And then Craig Elo, who's been portrayed as the, the chump in all of this for years, he makes, he makes a layup with, inside of those six seconds. There's like three seconds left in the game. And I'm pretty sure he gets fouled too to yeah. put Cleveland up by one. And then, you know, Chicago calls a timeout and they get the ball at half court. And, you know, MJ basically has to shove himself open to get the ball. And Elo plays awesome defense too. That's the other the poor, this poor white guy is just, Pretty, he couldn't have played a better defense. They I also had the clip from Ron Harper, which I'd never seen before. I had, I did not know that either. When and I Ron Harper's was like, let me get him. He was like, no, no, Elo's got him. He said, well, whatever, motherfucker, fuck this that's, or whatever he said. That's bullshit. That's bullshit. I, I, didn't, I didn't like that part of the documentary because anybody that knows basketball, you watch that. Craig Elo does everything but block the shot. 
Jordan Jordan gathers himself. He elevates and he's about to let it go, and then Elo's right there. And if he does let it go, Elo's going to block the shot, so he has to double clutch in the air from 16, 17 feet, which is not an easy shot. I mean, when you're, I mean, even, even if he didn't have to double clutch, it wasn't an easy shot. So Elo couldn't have done much better, but Jordan hits the shot anyway. And he's, he's fuck all y'all, all y'all had us down. I know you got him. I know you got him like Muhammad Ali type stuff. That, that stuff is awesome. I think the interviews of Jordan are, are some of the best, I think that just the raw, uncut—he's just being himself. Yeah, is the and best we've never heard him—we've never heard him say that because they didn't show him his interview after the game, and he's just like, "Yeah, you know, it was—it was a great shot. I'm—I'm gl- I'm happy for this team. We're moving on." Like he—he, he, you know, he said something about some of the writers said I was going home, but it's also just amazing to think that like Kevin Durant is on Twitter with burner accounts, like trying to back himself <laughs> up. <laughs> And Michael Jordan is walking up to beat writers who it is funny that they're sitting courtside and just say, oh, fuck you guys. I'm co- <laughs> yeah, I got, like, I got you. I got you in game three. I got you oh, in game amazing. four. Now I'm coming for your ass. That and, so you know, awesome. as you mentioned, the last six seconds of that game, we never, you know, Elo not only is is a fucking goat for this, he hit what should have been the game winning shot and he should have gotten fouled. And I've heard a lot of discussion about this recently with Jackie McMullen talking to doing different interviews leading up to this. And she talked about how she went to a charity thing one time, and Elo was there. And Elo, apparently, great guy, like does a lot, nice guy, had a nice career, was a good player. And she said that for like three hours, people came up to talk to Craig Elo, and every single one of them talked about the shot. Like not not a not most of them. Nobody came up and said like, "How are your family?" or whatever. And he said, she said like these were you know. Some people that he knew and some people that he didn't know, people just come up and just, like, can you imagine being remembered for one moment that you, that's like, t- one yeah, of the worst awful. moments? Because it was really the end of that Cleveland team. And Cleveland team yeah, never made a run again, um, which is just, it's it's wild to be Craig yeah, that's, You just, it sucks to be Craig Elo. You watch in in it, almost any any Cleveland Chicago game, he has to he has to check Jordan, which means he's the best defensive player on his own team. So he's not, I mean, there's, there isn't a single player that played, that guarded Michael Jordan and shut him down. There wasn't a Kawhi Leonard in that that could basically, and I would say Kawhi Leonard is probably the closest thing to, to a guy that can, that can prevent LeBron from doing, from, you know, single-handedly willing his teams to win. There really wasn't a guy that did that. And so Craig Elo probably without Jordan is remembered in a completely different sense than, than he is now. So poor, poor Craig Elo. He's probably not remembered. You and I probably don't know who Craig Elo is. If he's, yeah, I guess that's a good point you know, too. He's not, he's for whatever uh, reason. And apparently he's got a good attitude infamous. about it, but it is interesting. So then let's get back to this. Uh, they talk about the, the Jordan rules and yeah. and Brendan Malone, who's the Detroit coach lays out the strategy prevent Jordan from going baseline, push him to his left hand at the top of the key, double team him when he gets the ball in the post, punish him whenever he gets in the paint. You know, they, John Sally and these other guys just said, like, we didn't let him get airborne at all. Uh, and you yeah, see him just him getting fucking up. hammered. Uh, Detroit beat Chicago in the playoffs in 88, 89, and 90. I believe 88 was in the, the second round. It was a sweep. 89 was six games in the Eastern Conference Finals, and 90 was seven games in the Eastern Conference Finals. So, 
you know, whatever that means. And then Jordan says in his interview, I hated them. The hate carries even to this day. They yeah. made it personal that they physically beat the shit out of us. Like, these fuckers are so petty, and I love it. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome that they carry this, that they're carrying this today. The Horace Grant interview was really, really good. Um, I think that might have been, that might have been in uh, episode four, but uh, they, they talk about, I, that's when they beat them, episode four. That interview is really good, but he says, Horace Grant's line is like, anybody that tells you that they did, there wasn't animosity, that we didn't hate them is just straight up lying. They're when they call weak. them straight Everybody up bitches after the handshake, we'll get actually we'll get right. to that in episode four. That's episode, we're still yeah, in episode three. three. I love this. Yeah, we, can, we got we got, a, we got a, what are we like an hour in? We're we forty eight minutes into this podcast, and we're still talking about the first hour of TV that was about forty eight minutes of content. Uh, I, I'll bet your uh, fiance loves the fact that you're talking about a, a documentary that happened thirty years ago about stuff that happened confused. thirty years ago. We're talking about a one hour episode for over an hour. This or so. isn't the life this, she chose. <laughs> I'm not her prince charming at this point. Get out. Uh, anyway, so then they then they kind of show like that animosity. These guys still hate each other uh, to when they signed Rodman, but then Pippen said that he fit Chicago like a hand in a glove, and you know he was he led the league in rebounding all three seasons he was there, and they won 72 games the first year in 95 96. Um, right, you know, interesting. He, yeah, he was a he was an integral part of uh, them winning. He says that would they have won without me? He's like, there's a good chance. Yeah, he says no. Then right. then they go back to the '98 season where Rodman started slow while Pippen was out. Pippen misses the first 35 games we talk about, but then you know I think they showed that the Bulls started eight and seven, and then but by the time Scotty actually came back, the Bulls were in first place in the East, and a large part of that was because Rodman was you know locked in was locked in and and phil sort of i won't say he credits himself with it i forget if rodman sort of filled it but it was an interesting dynamic that like without scotty there rodman really turned it on and became that go-to guy because michael knew he knew that he you know michael needed him and it sort right. of goes back to that sort of you know you don't you don't have to uh have to say things like that but you just know it you know Right, and that's what, and that's what, why Rodman played so hard is he felt like I can't let Mike down, I can't let Phil down, you know. This is, and and he says, he even says after that game that when Rodman gets thrown out, we already touched on it when he goes to Jordan's room for the cigar. He says, he, Jordan says that Rodman was straight as an arrow from then on, uh, and that's really cool. That's a really cool part of his character or his his career arc because he's 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 held accountable and he's like and he's. And he's on the straight and narrow, and he's doing everything he's supposed to. He's locked in, and then by the time Scotty comes back, he's like he's dying to to get out and party and go get hammered and go on a seventy two hour bender that he straight up asked he asked for a vacation because he can't he can't handle it. And I think part of it, I think they even touch on it. They said when Scotty came back, Rodman was no longer Jordan's number two guy. Yeah, that was an interesting he's, dynamic that like once. They really turned it around once he embraced that role and being on all the time and being there for the team. And then once Scotty came back, you know, you're your third banana, your third wheel, or whatever. You're you're the you're not as important anymore. Um, and so then you we get the Rodman requesting a midseason vacation in Vegas with with Phil just like. Then he say that like Phil called Michael into a room and said like, 
hey, uh, Dennis is going on vacation. You ain't going to see him. And he was yeah, like, what? He's... And then you, you've got the quote, if anybody needs a vacation, I need a fucking vacation. Yeah. <laughs> if you let this dude go on vacation, we're not going to see him. If you let this dude go to Vegas, we're definitely not going to see him. Just hilarious and true. Yeah. Of course, he approved a 48-hour and... vacation and it took, you know, three or four days. I like the transition between the two episodes is there. They, they, they start the fourth episode with Dennis Rodman has been on an approved vacation. Oh, yeah, for that was great. 24 hour. And then they just wind the clock. Yeah. The 49 hours years. it goes without without permission. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. And but just could you imagine this happening today? Like if Draymond Green was like, you know. Hey, hey! And camera phones everywhere. For well, like you, on I could see, yeah, exactly. Like you could see a scenario. Well, Draymond's probably not a good example, but let's say Draymond, the third best player on a you know championship caliber team, right. whatever, says, uh, "Hey, Steve Kerr, I need I need forty eight hours. I got to go to Vegas and recharge my batteries," which is also hilarious. Like if which you is, think, yeah, the, if you think about no a basketball whatsoever. player going on vacation, it's like, hey, I'm gonna go to Mexico for two days and just go sit on a beach. Like that's one thing. But just say like, hey, I got to go to Vegas. The only way I can recharge my batteries is just go get fucking ripped for for right. three days. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm I'm gonna get no sleep for seventy two hours. I'm gonna drink. I'm gonna I'm gonna be doing lines off of strippers. I'm like that. That's how you recharge your batteries. And then the other thing is that they document how Phil's trying to get him back in shape, and he's in he's. he's He's perfectly fine. He, the dude has that unreal motor, uh, which <laughs> is so great. cool. That's that's what's really that's awesome part of of Rodman in this in all of this story is that there are stories about him playing a back to back. You know the Kevin Garnett story where he he's played a back to back and he's in he's in the weight room after the game after playing something like 40 minutes and Kevin Garnett was pissed off because I think they had just lost to him. And he says, uh, he's like, Oh, what, you know, Kevin Garnett. He's like, you know, young blood, you played a great game. You know, he's like, what you doing in here? And he said, Oh, you know, I'm pissed off about losing. I wanted to get in a, I wanted to get in a couple sets or something. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, he's like, Oh man, after these back to backs, you got to get, I like to get a five mile run in because I got to play against this kid that says he's the best rebound in the league in Dallas next or, you know, in two days or something like that. He's like, he's giving him advice about his idea of a cool down is to get a five mile run in, you know, after you just played a back to back and it's going to help you. It's going to help you for the next game. This dude just had this unreal motor. He probably could have been a marathon runner or a triathlete. Yeah. You know, if he I wasn't love a basketball player. I think my favorite shot of the video was. Rodman walking out of the locker room wherever he was holding a Miller light in a fucking leather jacket (laughs) and just getting onto a motorcycle and fucking zooming out like just fucking amazing. He tells he tells his boy, you know, his boy's kind of sitting there waiting for him. He's like, well, let me finish this first. I got to finish this beer before I hop on this bike and then weave in and out of traffic outside of the outside. I mean, could you just imagine if I mean, I keep using Draymond Green, but like. Just mid-season, he just shows up in Vegas. There's camera phones everywhere. I mean, there were enough cameras there when Jor- when when Rodman is there. Like that was not the only camera shooting him. <laughs> and no. he's just fucking chugging a beer and getting on his he, bike and then zooming off. It's amazing. That dude, he did not give a fuck. He did not care about what anybody really didn't care about what people thought of him. I think he wanted to be liked, but he didn't care. You know, he didn't care all that much if you didn't accept him or not. That's that that's, that part of this footage is awesome as I've seen I grew up a diehard Bulls fan and a Jordan fan uh but uh, so much of this stuff I've never seen before 
I've read books. I've watched I've watched hours of YouTube highlights of of the Chicago both three P teams, but so much of this footage is not is not been available until now. Just, this shit's so good. I could talk about this for hours. So keep going. Yeah, and you know, just to and and also this was absolutely the right thing to do. Like as crazy it is to say like I, I need to go on a three day bender in Vegas. It worked. Like it worked. And Phil was was a genius to let him do it. But like could you imagine Stephen A. Smith's head would explode if fucking somebody missed two games and is just gone from the oh, team because they're in so. Vegas on a bender with Carmen Electra? Like what would happen in twenty twenty? It's fucking crazy. Yeah, um, the internet would the internet would explode. The the world of social media and yeah. news every uh, every publication would be documenting that amazing um, some other great video the funniest thing that happened was phil collins is a 35 year old rookie coach his first game at madison square garden he said he had gum all over his mouth and he's sweating jordan, jordan came up to him who jordan who's only 23 at the time said coach take a drink of water and wipe that stuff off your mouth i'm not going to let you lose your first game then he goes for 50 and they win in the garden 108 103 and at the time, that was the that was the scoring record in MM, MSG. That yeah. was the most points anybody had scored in there. For, so that's, for that's really cool. Player. His yeah, first game, amazing. Is that still? Are we still episode three? Yeah, this is the end of episode three. I don't know. Okay. Uh, the end of the episode basically ends with him asking for a vacation. So okay. we're kind of right. going bounce, bouncing around just a little bit more. Um, All right. So episode episode four is a little bit less about Rodman. Yeah, well, it's still a little bit more about the the Pistons. So, in certain ways, yeah, we're, on, we're on to Rodman. Okay, um, it's it's about the it's about them overcoming. The yes, right there. Yes. So yeah. you know, the, the the as mentioned, the Pistons uh, eliminated the Bulls from the playoffs in eighty eight, eighty nine, and ninety. So then, this is kind of about getting over the hump, and this sort of drilled a little more into Phil Jackson's input uh, and impact into to making that happen. Uh, you know. Um, my favorite, I think, my besides the quotes, there's a bunch of awesome quotes in this episode. But one of my favorite uh, scenes is where Jordan gets everybody on a weight program after they've lost to the Pistons. Uh, yes. I think you, I think you said it was they said after said seven games. Yeah. In, it was they lost in Game Seven to Detroit, um, and instead of everybody going on vacation, uh, I think it was like Will Purdue. Says, oh, was Cartwright, Jordan, I forget who it was. They said that they were back there practicing, working out yeah, the next day. The next day, they're all in the weight room. And that's been pretty well documented about Jordan. I know Jordan, he hires that trainer about the time. Mm-hmm. The guy the guy that was his trainer ended up being Dwayne Wade's trainer and a handful of other players. Uh, Wade, yeah, he's a personal trainer. and But the whole team being back there, I thought was really cool. And he said, like, you know, if we're going to play against these guys, if we're going to beat them, we – I want to administer the pain. I'm not, we're not going to sit here and be the guys that take the pain. Right. Uh, and he tells, well, I think my favorite quote is he tells, uh, Jordan tells, cause every time Horace Grant, Horace Grant was getting beat to shit. He's, he's the front court player. This is before Rodman's there. And he's there. He's probably their best front court player. Uh, you know, they had Bill Cartwright or they had a few other guys, but the best player was Horace Grant. He was the, he was third fiddle before Rodman and Horace would get beat up and he would just whine. And Jordan told him to stop fucking whining. Yeah, here's, like, don't here's fucking whine. Then Jordan, they... Don't fucking whine. Don't let them see you whine. Right. That's how they know they got you. Just be strong. We're going to beat these bullies. Yeah. And he kind of goes to pick him up and he's like, we're going to beat, we're going to beat these dudes. And that's when 
And that's when I think Scotty, he gets fouled by Rodman like that. And he, instead of, you know, uh, instigating something or getting back up and, you know, pushing and shoving and letting him know that it messed with him, that it messed him with his head, he just sort of lays there for a second and gets up, you know, goes and shoots his free throws and goes about his business. And that's when they felt like they had broken. I didn't realize that they had swept, that they swept Detroit yeah. in, in that series either. Isaiah says in his interview, which he's always wearing some like, you know, $100,000 suit, three-piece suit and all these interviews that he does. Even on like NBA TV he does too. I think that's kind of weird, but he says he's never been swept before. Uh, and I don't think he's ever he was ever swept after that too. Which it is, is crazy that, really that, cool. that Jordan, you know, after they get beaten 90, that he dedicates himself to the weight room. He wants his team to get tough. And then they come back and sweep the two-time defending champs. And as we talked about earlier, like almost the three-time defending champs out of the playoffs um, in the and Eastern Conference beat, Finals in he 91. beats L.A. And then they beat L.A. in five games. Yeah. He said the only reason they lost game one was because they were nervous and they played terrible. And uh, they lost the first game by three points. And he said when they – I think he says at the end of – at the end of game one against LA that he, they all realized like we played like shit and we still almost won. So I'm not worried about, we're going to beat these dudes. And that's, that's kind of how they went into it. And they yeah. basically won the next four games. So um, we, have you, have you listened to any of that Bill Simmons rewatchable stuff? Not, um, not much. Ryan Russell, you, you have to, cause they, they talk about, I mean, first they, 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 they kind of break down the, the documentary like we're doing but they also they also go back and watch one of the games one of these bulls games with jordan and the three the two three p teams and they talk about they talk about one of these la games and they talk about they talk about all they talk about new york playing against new york which we'll i'm sure we'll get to in the documentary but it's really cool to hear them break down how much different things were how good magic was uh like Rosillo talks about how Jordan moves he moves almost like a leopard or a cat he's so freaking smooth and he can mm-hmm. once he turns the corner on somebody like he can end up at the rim before you realize it you know you can you, you look at it and you're like okay he's got to take another step before he jumps but it's like no he just he just got his hip around you and he's just going to take off which is kind of what Russell Westbrook does a little bit where he I mean he's a, he's not as he's obviously not as graceful or he's not in control as much as Jordan is, but when he, he gets a step on you, all he does is get his hips past you and he just basically can take off from wherever he is and go attack the rim. And it's just really awesome to watch that mm-hmm. stuff. And they, they break it down. I, I recommend it free advertising for there you go. the Rosillo podcast. All right. We'll keep moving here. Uh, so we'll go back to when the bulls do sweep Detroit in 91 and the, the Pistons refused to shake the Bulls' hands, basically. Uh, as you mentioned, the filmmakers let Isaiah in his three-piece suit talk first and kind of give – he expresses regret. He said Bill Lambeer told him to get off the court. Uh, and then he argued that it was standard practice at the time to not have handshakes, uh, noting that the, the Celtics had basically done that to him, uh, you know, three years before that. And then Jordan just, you know – this is like probably the the most uh, viral part of the documentary where he just says, well, I know it's all bullshit. Whatever he says now, it wasn't his true actions then. He's had enough time to think about it or the reaction to the public has changed his perspective. You can show me anything you want. There's no way you convince me he wasn't an asshole. 
which is just <laughs> these guys are just so fucking petty about a handshake that happened 30 years ago. Like it, I love it. I love the fucking pettiness. Absolutely. Yeah. But it is. Yeah. This is something that people know about the, these this Pistons team that is they're remembered by this, and it's like you know if they shake hands with Michael, and if they win win that game seven. Like we think about this team a lot differently than we do now, um, but anyway. And then they, he shows, he he watches the clip of Isaiah uh, talking about it, and then he just said, "I shook everyone's hand two years in a row when they beat us. There's a certain amount of respect for the game that we paid to them. That's sportsmanship. No matter how much it hurts, believe me, it fucking hurt. They didn't yeah. have to shake our hands. We knew we whooped their ass already. To me, that was yeah. better in some ways than winning a championship." And that was awesome. that footage of him and Jerry Krause and the team like dancing on the fucking bus with drinks in their hands. <laughs> Jerry Krause was so fucking fact, amazing. And got then the FUPA. Then you get the yeah, you get the quote from Horace Grant, uh, who just said it more bluntly: "Straight up bitches." That's what they He's walked off. At, like, off the, yeah, amazing. That's, uh, that's that's great. I love it, with the Jordan interview about Isaiah. I love how he says right before he looks at the clip, he says, well, "Whatever he said is probably." Uh, it, probably because he's had time to think about it or the reaction from other people. And he said, that's like the first thing that Isaiah says when they hand him the phone is like, well, if we had known people were going to react this way, then and Jordan just kind of looks up at everybody like, yep, exactly, yeah, it's, it's exactly so like good. I said. That's really awesome stuff. It's entertaining. They, this is like basketball nerd. This is just like basketball porn, basically, for – for a savant, for are you are you savants. are you making a drink back there? Why do we? I'm, I'm making I'm making pre workout right now. I'm I hearing just a lot of ice cubes just, and shit bouncing around. I I just watched the uh, the second episode for the second time. Watched both of them twice now, and I get like these are really bad to watch late at night. Um, you can't I can't sleep. I, I Rosillo talks about this a little bit. How. You watch this is kind of like watching Rocky or Creed or yeah, something. Yeah, like every like, NBA player is tweeting that. Like, let's who wants to go to the gym right now and shit when these yeah. things I haven't picked up a basketball since they can't since school's been canceled, and I'm dying. I'm dying to now, even though I'm still. I'd really rather just play golf and lift weights if I wasn't watching this documentary. But you watch it and you're like, God, I gotta go hoop. I want to go do something. I feel. I uh, you feel um inspired. By all the stuff. So this is really this is the documentary is doing its job so far. Four episodes in, yeah. Pro- probably only going to get better. Probably so. So then we we get through. We see Jerry Krause dancing. Uh, they they start talking a little bit about Phil here and and the triangle and all that stuff. We talked about that earlier. Uh, we talked about the game one of the Lakers where uh, the Bulls lose at home, but they they. You know, the media basically wrote them off and said there's no way they're going to do this, but they knew that they had played shitty and they were going to whip them. Then yeah. game two, he makes 13 consecutive shots, <clears throat> including the spectacular move layup, um, which was a symbolism of the entire series. No one could stop him anymore, and he knew it. Uh, Pippen's sturdy defense on Magic was all the help that Jordan needed. You know, they talked about how nobody picked up Magic 94 feet, but Scotty did. And how he just fucking yeah. you know ruined them, which is amazing. Um, those and two, then they those show, two guys. Yeah, Go ahead. and they show John Paxton, uh, you know, hitting a bunch of shots in Game Five to clinch the series, which is kind of funny. Um, and uh, I think that was Phil. Said a that, lot of that was Phil's doing. Phil right. Was, they said that was exactly is, what Phil was trying to get Michael to believe in. Paxton said these guys can help you do it. Yeah, you can't not gonna be able to do it all on your own. 
there's 10, there's 10 people on the court, you know, you need to use the, the four that are on your side. Um, and I totally lost my train of thought. I was going to add something else about the, oh, the two Jordan and Pippen, the, I, I guess the part that younger, you know, even, even people our age, even fans our age don't quite realize how nasty they were defensively is that yeah. they, the against New York, which I hope that they document, they pick them up. They trap the ball. These are professional basketball players trapping the ball 90 feet from the hoop because because New York and the Pistons were kind of the same way. They had all these big bruisers that couldn't really handle the ball. Like it was they, they'd have two guards and three front court players. So Phil is like, what we're gonna do when they have this lineup in is, is we're gonna trap the ball. And if you if you are the third guy down the court, you're basically gonna play center field. You're gonna play safety. And you're gonna be you're gonna try to pick off a pass. And mo- a lot of the time it was Horace Grant. And he's a front court player, but he was quick enough and he had enough motor that he could do it. And he's he's picking off passes like, like it's almost like if you were watching one of my games, a middle school game or a high school <laughs> yeah, game. Yeah, these aren't strategies you see in the NBA. Yeah. And, and and could you imagine You know, I don't think people realize asking, that, that Michael won he was first team all defense like a hundred times, but he also was pl- defensive player of the year and MVP in the same season. Like he, and he led the league in scoring seven more more times than anyone else has ever done. Like it's I there's it's no amazing... way that, that will ever be repeated. Right. There there's no I doubt there the way that the game is played now, it's so high scoring. You I being the being the scoring champion and the MVP and defensive player of the year, that's good. There's no way in hell that's ever going to be repeated. Yeah. But could you imagine it asking like asking LeBron to to guard to trap the ball? 70 80 feet from the hoop they, all while playing nowadays, 40 minutes a game yeah no there's I mean, just no way they, they would just look at you like are you out of your mind like we're not and i think some of that was when jordan was younger that wasn't he didn't yeah. do it i don't think he was doing this in, in the, the 98 season yeah. yeah the second run he's more there's more of a half court let's try and let's let's keep moving on this thing we're gonna go okay. forever but uh we get some broad strokes about Jackson's path to coaching the Bulls, his childhood in Montana as the son of a pastor and a minister, his successful playing career with the Knicks, which was awesome to see, a whirlwind coaching rise that includes stops in Puerto Rico and the uh, Continental Basketball Association. That Puerto Rico video was awesome. I'd never, I had no idea that he coached down there. That was really cool. Really? He didn't talk about it in his book? I don't think he did. If he did, it's very, it barely mentions it. I had no idea yeah. that's how he cut his teeth. They talked about his unconventional teeth. approach uh, and uh, how he was a hippie and a free spirit who roamed once roamed to California Beach thinking he was a lion after taking LSD, which was <laughs> got pretty that awesome. Picture, yeah, that photo was him fucking the cab with <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Jackson was uniquely gifted at connecting with players. He bonded with Rodman over their shared interest in Native American culture. He oriented his pitch to Jordan around doing whatever was necessary to help him win. Uh, it was the right message, you know. Yeah, he's the right man for the job. He's, he and, might have and been smoking peyote on his own. Exactly. But, uh, Jordan talked right about the how the, all the media talk about his lack of team success relative to, to Johnson and Larry Bird ate at him, and then uh, it's pretty wild. And then after after Jordan went beats the Lakers the first time, he screams seven years come in a reference to the length of his career at that point. He eventually broke down in tears while clutching the trophy with his father at his side, which is, you know, that was kind of tough to watch to see his dad there. 
uh, and how happy his dad was knowing what happened to his dad just a couple years later. Yeah. And yeah, it, Will Perdue talked about sometimes we question whether he was human, whether he had feelings. A guy that was totally focused on winning only, the only emotion we had ever seen out of him was anger and frustration, and we were literally stunned to see those emotions, which I thought was really interesting because you've seen in this documentary him yelling at his teammates and calling them fucking bozos and fucking harp and all this stuff and yelling at them. And on the court, like you never see that expression of joy except when in the biggest moments. You've got the the right. shot and then to see him in the championship. It's kind of kind of cool. And that's when you knew yeah, I think you that's when you know it's real too, is that this all of this this drive to win that that he had in this almost, you know, sociopathic uh mindset to to being competitive was it was real because when he did win he let it all out it was any you know and he celebrated his the success of his teammates he didn't it I, I mean certainly a lot of it was about him and he's the most celebrated player of all this but he's uh at the end he really did want to win and that's when he decided okay well now it's okay now we can celebrate now we can now we can let our guard down now you can cry now you can let it all yeah. out because because we we got to, you know, we met the goal that we were trying, where we were trying to go. So that's, I think that's just awesome. It's awesome, awesome to see. And, and it's really cool to hear his teammates say that too, because you probably look at this guy like, God damn, does he ever fucking chill? Like, is there any chill in this dude at all? Does he ever relax? And it's like, no, because he wants to win so freaking bad. We can, you know, we can relax after we win. So yeah. that's cool to see. You had some other great moments uh, in this this hour where uh, Jordan, who obviously didn't want to play for J- Jackson because under Collins in 87, Jordan answered averaged 37 points and 28 shots a game and had a 38.3 usage rate, which all led the league. He said, I wasn't a Phil Jackson fan. He was coming in to take the ball out of my hands. Doug put the ball in my hands. Everybody has an opportunity to touch the ball under Phil. I didn't want Bill Cartwright to have the ball with five seconds left. That's not an equal opportunity biz offense. That's fucking bullshit, which is great. (laughs) And then my favorite quote of the whole thing, he goes, Tex Tex would yell at me to move the ball and say, there's no I in team. team. There's a fucking I. I told him, but there's an I in win, which is just so fucking great. (laughs) So great. This might be the quote. That might be the quote of the straight up bitches. And there's no, there's, there might not, be any i and team but i and win awesome quote in that episode well that's it well that's the longest podcast in backdoor cover history <laughs> we could have gone could have kept going and going backdoor cover will be back later this week to talk in uh nfl drafts and some other stuff with brad uh mind of micah we'll have more later this week as well uh thanks for listening whitey thank you for joining us my pleasure do you want to you know Give out some handles. Let the ladies come yell at you or anything. Uh, yeah, you can find me at Coach Spews Six on IG. Uh, that's the best way to find me as long as you're uh, over the age of eighteen. His DMs are open, school. ladies. <laughs> yes, they are, Mister Coach Bobby. All right. Uh, until next time. Mm, bye bye. Bye bye.